Good morning. Let's pray. Dear God, align our hearts with yours. Let us hate the things you hate and love the things you love. And let us hear from you this morning. Our passage for today is Romans 6, 12 through 14. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. Once upon a time, when I was a new baby lawyer, We had a client who wanted to be a registered widget sales agent. And so our client was a company, not an actual, it's not really a registered widget, we're just simplifying the example. Um, Our client was a company, not an actual human. And so my boss said, Darcy, go look at the Registered Widget Sales Act of Maryland and make sure that a company is allowed to be a registered widget sales agent. And so I trotted off to my office and I pulled up the statute and it said any person may be a registered widget sales agent if such person completes the following three steps. And so 45 seconds later, I was back in my boss's office with the bad news. To be a registered widget sales agent in Maryland, you have to be a person. And my boss responded, yes, but go find out what person means. Now, luckily, I was too new on the job to act huffy, but on that walk back to my office, I felt pretty indignant. We all know what person means. Person means person. But I pulled up this statute, and sure enough, right at the beginning, there was a long section labeled definitions. And in that section, under P, I found person, when used herein, refers to any individual, corporation, limited liability company, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, I'm pretty sure a pack of wild dogs could have counted as a person for purposes of the Registered Widget Sales Act of Maryland. Definitions are tricky little buggers because we have this tendency to sort of walk around with a rough sense of what a lot of words kind of mean-ish. But when that sense is off, we can end up in the really wrong place. N.T. Wright describes it this way. He says that certain terms or phrases, particularly when we're talking about theology, are like suitcases into which we pack a whole lot of ideas or a complex group of ideas. And when we use that term or phrase, we're picking up the suitcase and we're saying, all the ideas that I have packed in here, that's what I'm talking about. I don't have time to explain all these ideas to you, but that's what I'm talking about. Right, So if I tell you, I think the Bible is infallible, that's shorthand for a whole set of ideas about history and authorship and inspiration and the development of canon, and I can't re-explain it every time I want to reference infallibility, so I just use this word, infallibility. But what N.T. Wright points out is that the problem with these suitcases is that we carry them around for a really long time. And sometimes we get kind of fuzzy on the details of what's actually inside. If you carry a purse or a briefcase or a diaper bag, you are familiar with this. 
You throw something in without thinking or because it makes sense for a particular day or occasion, and then eventually you reach in and you find that you are carrying around swim diapers every day, and it is February, <laughs> hypothetically. So Wright says that it's important every once in a while to unzip our suitcases and shake out the contents. Make sure nothing's gone musty, been crumpled beyond recognition, been thrown in by accident, or fallen out. So that's what we are going to do a little bit of today. I brought this prop. It is thin. It is also a suitcase. Bear with me. Now, to be honest, I'm mostly going to be talking to myself this morning. This is not something that I figured out. This is not something that I've been mindful enough of in my own life. Um, and as we talk today, most of my examples are going to be from my own lack of mindfulness, from the stuff that trips me up the most. I want to be clear at the outset that sin is something that we are each going to be doing battle with until our last breath. Sinfulness is not reserved for the big stuff, murderers and swindlers and puppy kickers. What I'm saying this morning is not meant to contradict what you've heard from this pulpit about how important it is to realize that you are a fallen person who is born captive to sin. But I think for a lot of us in the evangelical community, the problem isn't that this suitcase, the things we define as sin, what we have wrapped up in our idea of sin, the problem isn't that this is too empty. The problem is that it's too full. And as a result, we don't take it seriously. Our passage today says that we need to orient ourselves in direct opposition to sin. The message translates verse 12 in part as, sin does not get a vote in your life. Don't give it the time of day. When I first read these verses in preparation for today, my reaction was, I have to talk about breaking free from the reign of sin? I don't feel broken free from the reign of sin. In fact, sometimes I feel awkwardly close to sin. We're kind of frenemies. I have a hard time hating it as much as I should. Aren't there some sins that are kind of like just kind of funny or sort of harmlessly pleasant or not ideal, but everyone needs advice or two? Sometime in my formative years, someone told me that sin was an archery term. Has anyone else heard this? Right? That sin means missing the mark. So I developed in my head this really clear picture of God's ideal for me. And anything that wasn't that was sin. For an adolescent girl, it was an easy jump from there to the idea that sin was the absence of perfection. Forgetting my homework kind of felt like a sin. And missing a friend's birthday kind of felt like a sin. Hitting the snooze button felt like a sin. Messy handwriting felt like a sin. Now, I knew better than to tell anyone that I thought messy handwriting was a sin. But the truth is, in my head, I had this sort of one big box, probably best labeled, not my best me. And inside of it, all of these things were all mixed up. And I didn't do a great job of tracking what was sin and what was just kind of human. 
A very honest friend admitted to me once, here's what scares me about heaven. If everything about me that is sinful, everything that is my fallen nature is stripped away, won't my whole personality be gone? Will I even recognize myself? Do you see what's happening in that train of thought? When your definition of sin gets overbroad and kind of fuzzy around the edges, it stops feeling like an enemy. So we are not supposed to let sin reign. But we get sloppy about what exactly it is that we are supposed to be so decisively breaking ties with. We launch a No More Messy House campaign, and when it sort of falls apart, we also let ourselves go on the No More Snipping at Husband campaign. These two things are not the same. One of them is about general self-improvement, which is great, but if this year is not the year for the messy house, okay. Or for the clean house, okay. The other is about respecting your spouse, and it's not something you get to ignore or shrug off until next year or say is just kind of not how you are. One will destroy your home and you and will bring sorrow to someone who is loved deeply by God. The other will just make it harder to find your keys in the morning. So, the suitcase. We're going to spend a little bit of time today airing out the contents. This is not going to be anywhere close to comprehensive. What I'm hoping you can do is sort of follow this exercise with me for the next 15 minutes, and then this week take some time to sort through your own suitcase, your own set of ideas about what sin is. A lot of us first packed these bags when we were six or seven years old with a six or seven-year-old's understanding. And for the last 20, 40, 60 years, We've been kind of unzipping a corner and shoving a new thing in, pulling something out. And chances are, there's some cleanup to do in there. Let's deal with some low-hanging fruit first. I grew up as an American with American advertising, especially American advertising towards women. Uh, So there's a certain part of me that when I hear sinful, I think, anyone have a guess? Sorry? No, something specific that is sinful. Well, chocolate. Now, half a second of thought. You know this doesn't fit in the suitcase, right? But we do kind of let ourselves float around, float along with the ad copy here. We refer to warm, melty desserts with this trio of adjectives. Rich, decadent, sinful as if those three are synonyms. It seems innocent, but every time we sort of play along with that idea, even if we know it's tongue-in-cheek, we are telling ourselves that something that feels so good must be sinful. Reverse that sentence, and what do you have? Sin feels good. That is not a thought that we need rattling around in our brains. Chocolate was designed by God on purpose to taste that good. Now, context, moderation, stewardship of your body. I'm not saying a fifth cookie is always a good idea. But please, let's be mindful 
of the ways that we let this sort of advertising, this sort of cultural touch point, inform our understanding of sin. God, the creator of taste buds, is not running around playing chocolate police. When we are told to orient ourselves in opposition to sin, we are not talking about opposition to anything as benign as chocolate. While we're on the subject of things that feel good, we have this guy, Lust. Now, in order to not be counterproductive, I did not go through and fill this picture album with pictures of men, but you can just go ahead and pretend. (laughs) We just spent 10 weeks on this, so I'm not going to belabor the point, but lust is pretty well-defined. It's a sin. It made the top seven. Can anyone define lust for me? Anyone? Was eye candy? All right. Well, lust is having, candy is an interesting use of word. Lust is having an appetite for something that is not yours to have. Lust is not having an appetite. It's not even having a really big appetite. Victoria's Secret has built an empire out of selling what it calls lust. Lusty underwear, lusty lip gloss, and lustily half-buttoned pajamas. What you wear, underwear, lip gloss, whatever, in your bedroom for your spouse cannot, by definition, be lusty. It can be arousing. Is arousal a sin? No. Again, this is an area that seems obvious when we stop and think about it. But do you stop and think about it? Because if you kind of go with the flow of cultural definitions, if if you let the ideas of arousal and attraction and sexual satisfaction get kind of all bundled up for you in this idea that, like, love is emotional and lust is physical, and that's the term we use for that, it becomes really hard to see that actual lust is that bad because it's all wrapped up with this other stuff that isn't bad. So lust stays in the suitcase, but only lust and not arousal. So I'm going to take this picture that I drew of my own husband, right? And it stays out here. One footnote on lust before we move on. Lust often feels like a guy's thing, right? Like if we think about lust, this album should be filled with pictures of men in their underwear. I don't really care about seeing strange men in their underwear. That's not something that's hard for me to stay away from. But I still need to keep watch over lust. Lust isn't just about eye candy. It's not just about coveting physical attributes that are not yours to have. Lust is about developing or cultivating an appetite for anything that isn't yours to have. If you find yourself ruminating on how supportive or generous or something someone else's spouse is and letting your mind play through what it would be like if you had a spouse like that, how good that would feel for you, what you are dealing with is a lust issue. Okay. So lust is in the suitcase. 
arousal, chocolate, both out. That brings us to jealousy. Now, for this one, I have my BlackBerry because the Facebook app is on it. A few months ago, I realized that one of my stock responses to other people's posts on Facebook was, I'm jealous. I was declaring myself jealous of other people's concert tickets and dinner plate photos and baby milestones. A friend posted a picture of himself on the beach. I saw the picture. I thought, oh, it looks like fun. I love the beach. And I posted, I'm jealous. And then I thought, oh, am I jealous? Because that's probably bad, huh? Well, no. I wasn't bitter about my own circumstances. I didn't have any ill wishes towards my friend. I was genuinely happy that he was having fun at the beach. I had gotten into this habit of using I'm jealous as a synonym for I'm happy for you or that is a good thing that happened to you. And again, this kind of sloppy language matters. It matters how we throw around words like this because when I start thinking of jealousy as that thing I feel when anyone mentions their exciting plans or their achievements, it's harder to recognize and recognize the danger of my actual jealousy. And I have actual jealousy. Sometimes I hear that an old acquaintance got an awesome new job or wrote a book or started a company, and my reaction is, she's not even that smart. That should have been me. I do that, and that's not harmless. Jealousy, resentment against someone else's joy, and bitterness about my own situation, that's a sin. It destroys. We need to not give it the time of day. Now, so jealousy goes in the suitcase, but this is something we kind of need to kind of polish this off, right? Remember exactly what's in it. Let's not muddy the waters by using sin words as cutesy compliments. Recognizing that someone else's plans sound like fun does not belong in this set of ideas. Find a new word for that. Last one. Making messes. Has anyone here read Anne Rice's novel, The Road to Cana? Yeah? Do you want a basic plot? What's it about? Right, so it's about Jesus' life leading up to his first miracle uh, at the wedding in Cana. It's a novel, um, but it's sort of faithfully told in an effort to uh, portray Jesus' character and sort of get the Christology right. And in this novel, there's a pivotal scene that kind of gets the plot going where Jesus is trying to be helpful and show compassion towards a young woman, and in so doing, he reaches out and he touches her veil. And that action basically ruins her life. Because her father sees her being touched by a man, and he declares her impure. Now, the dad is a jerk. He overreacts. That's made clear. But... In the, conversations, in the conversations that Jesus has with his family afterwards as they try to minimize the damage. It's a good book, guys. You really should read it. because anyway, um, It is clear that Jesus did mess up. He really probably shouldn't have touched her veil. He wasn't thinking. There was no malice, no ill intent. 
But the way the novel describes Jesus sort of reacting to this chain of events reminded me of my own moments lying in bed after I'd done something really dumb, thinking, what was I thinking? How could I have not realized what was going to happen from that? I had such a hard time with this story. Now, again, it's a novel. This is not an actual story from Jesus' life. But I had heard from multiple people that I really respected that this book was a great picture of Jesus' character. And here was Jesus sinning. I could not wrap my head around the fact that Jesus could have caused such a mess. So I had to bring Jason Poling in to talk me through it. And he reminded me that sinlessness does not mean failure to take any action that might result in negative results for any other person. He described it this way. Was Jesus sinless? Yes. Does that mean that when he walked, he did so without crushing blades of grass under his feet and damaging God's creation? No. Humans, including Jesus, can do things in an effort to advance the kingdom of God or just in an effort to eat lunch that end up having consequences for others. That doesn't mean that the action was necessarily a sin. There are moments in my life when I have said the complete wrong thing. There are times when I have gone about my daily business oblivious to the mess I was creating. Have you ever walked to the front of a store and checked out at a register and then once you're finished and you're leaving, you turn around and you notice that there's actually a whole line of people waiting in a single line for the next available register? Never Am I really the only one that's ever done that? <laughs> that's not going to win you many friends. I recommend you pay closer attention, but it's not a sin. I personally have a long history of sticking my foot in my mouth. It is long and painful. Now, I can sort of sift through those incidences and find some trends or groupings that have common causes, and it's my job to fix those common causes, right? So, like, I have more than once caused pain to someone struggling with infertility by asking them questions about, so when are you going to have a baby? What are you thinking about that? And sort of pushing through, like, they're trying to change the subject, Solution to that is, Darcy Bissett, stop asking people nosy questions. For me, that's a clear directive. It's part of taming my tongue, and ignoring that is a sin. We do need to do the work of sort of sifting through these messes that we've made and finding what sins are maybe lurking in that category, what we can fix. But if you're stuck in a guilt feedback loop because of an unintentional mistake, you need to pull that out of the suitcase you will probably forget someone's name. You will probably miss someone's birthday, and you will forget that it's someone's baby's nap time when you call them on their home phone. Why does this one matter? Because this is where the battle against sin starts feeling like a battle against your own personality and the limitations of the human mind and everything. And, oh, my goodness, what's even the point? I'm just going to sit tight and wait until Jesus gets back and he can sort it out. That's not the idea, right? 
This is how we end up with, if I get to heaven and I'm washed clean, will I even recognize me? So we'll take a few paper towels off this roll, right? Those are the kind of innocent mistakes that we didn't have the power to fix. But, and we put those, sorry, we put those in here. But in general, making messes as a category, not sin. I told you this wouldn't be a comprehensive exercise. Clearly it wasn't. This week, finish surveying your own concept of sin. Make sure it fits all the things that, God's ha- that God hates, but shake out any little extras that have gotten mixed in. See, this stuff, this stuff that we took out this morning, think of these as the flowers that hide the stink. We start loading our idea of sin in with all this extra stuff, some of it not bad and some of it actually really good, and sin starts to seem like it isn't so bad. It becomes a frenemy. This suitcase is full of trash. It stinks. It will make your life stink. It will make the whole world stink. It is not fun or lighthearted or harmless. It does not feel good in any kind of way that lasts. It is not useful in blowing off steam or easing life's burdens or bonding with friends. Therefore, do not let this trash reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to this trash as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For this trash shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law but under grace. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you that you did come to rescue us from the dominion of sin. We thank you that you have already given us victory. Pray that you would give us the strength this week to do battle with the sin in our lives that we must do battle with. And give us an understanding, God, of how you see the world and of how you see us that we can understand uh, what it is we need to do battle with. In your name we pray. Amen. Go in peace.